This morning, we're back in chapter 23, starting in verse 29, and uh, we are looking at the last of the curses that Jesus uh, proclaims towards the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, at the end of this, particularly the, the last verse there, verse 36, Jesus is going to use a very prophetic um, statement. And uh, it's actually caused a lot of discussion, a lot of speculation within church history. We'll talk about that a little bit when we get there. Um, for right now, let's all stand for our passage this morning. Starting in verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you were sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Let's pray. Father, as always, when we read your word this morning, help us to understand how it applies to us today. Help us to see not just the foolishness of the Pharisees, but, Father, how easy it would be for us to step into the same path. Most of all, help us to glorify you in the study of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. So Jesus starts again with the woe to you. And the emphasis is on their hypocrisy. Uh, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Hypocrites. A hypocrite is somebody who does not do what they say. And in this case, he's talking about their indignation, kind of a false indignation, against their ancestors. Uh, the, the scribes and the Pharisees were biblical scholars. Y'all remember when we talked about this here a few weeks ago that the scribes and the Pharisees came out of the period uh, before the return to Jerusalem, before Jesus' time, when the synagogues kind of became the center of worship and teaching in Israel. And it was the rabbis in the synagogues who studied God's Word and studied God's Word and studied God's Word that became that group known as the Pharisees. As the biblical scholars, biblical, of course, they only had the Old Testament, uh, they would read and understand the history of the church, specifically the history of God's prophets and the people that God sent to correct Israel when they went off the trail. Um, they would have understood Isaiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Malachi, Jonah, Elijah, Elisha, Zechariah, Nehemiah, Ezra, and all the rest of the prophets that I can never name. They would have understand, uh, understood rather, 
that when they were tortured and murdered and reviled and persecuted, that it was because they came with God's message. Even the Pharisees would have got that. And we can see that by their statement there, that they say that if we had been alive in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have participated. We wouldn't have done that stuff. Well, that's why Jesus calls them hypocrites. Now, if you think about the the time frame here that, that Jesus is making this statement, we're in the first century, we are somewhere around the year 30 A.D., it's right around when Jesus was crucified. This is right before his death. Um, the, the people of Israel had gone through a lot of turmoil. They had gone through a lot of stuff. And, and I've recapped the history for you a number of times. You had the, uh, the split between the northern and southern kingdom. You had the captivity of the northern kingdom. And then you had the captivity of the southern kingdom. And then you had the conquest of the Babylonians by the Medo-Persian Empire. And then you had the conquest of the Persian Empire by the Greek Empire. Then you had the split of the Greek Empire, and you had the, the political football that was Palestine being tossed back and forth between the Ptolemies to the south and the Seleucids to the north. And you had uh, Antiochus uh, IV, who was the guy who decided that it would be a great thing to do to sacrifice a pig on the altar in the temple and build a statue to Zeus, uh, which the Jews did not take really kindly to. So we had the Maccabean Revolt. And then we had the, the, the beginning of the Hasmonean dynasty where uh, that was Herod uh, and his, his family. And, and all of these things going on, the conquest by Rome, the occupation by Rome, all of this stuff had caused the people of Jerusalem to look into their history. Kind of important to us, looking at our history. Every now and then... People in America do the same thing. When we face a, uh, a particular hardship or crisis, we tend to look back to the heroes of our nation's history. We, we, we just celebrated the 4th of July, right? And who are some of the big names that come up during celebrations of the 4th of July? you got Washington, you got Jefferson, you've got Franklin, you've got the, the founding fathers and everything that they went through when they formed the Constitution and they stood up to England and they said, no, we're not going to follow the king's rules, right? So the people of Israel had started doing the same stuff. They were examining their past. They were digging for some kind of link back to God's promises. And in discovering their past, they discovered the heroes of the past, those who were martyred for being faithful to God's Word. The scribes and the Pharisees studying God's Word, examining these heroes. Think, think about Elijah, right? Elijah, great hero of the faith, right? Everybody loves Elijah. We love that story of him on Mount Carmel where, where he challenges the prophets of Baal and, and he calls down fire and it consumes his offering and their offering. And of course, that's after he spent all day poking them, right? That's the part I like about the story. Hey, yell louder. Maybe your God has gone off on a journey. Okay. And if you dig a little bit, if you dig a little bit into the Hebrew, that phrase actually means maybe he's in the bathroom, right? 
And, and then they cut themselves, and they're dancing, and they're screaming, and he's just poking and poking and poking and poking. And then after this victory, he runs off afraid for his life because Jezebel has put a bounty on his head, right? So we, all of this stuff, the Pharisees, the scribes, they start talking about these old Bible heroes in the synagogue, and people start discovering the tombs of these people, and, and they'd make monuments to these people, and the Pharisees and the scribes, they would go and they would decorate the tombs, and they would they would have festivals in honor of these people, and, and it's all important, and it's all great. And then they would say, if we had been alive back then, we wouldn't have participated in that. Well, sure. We know from what Jesus has been talking about in this chapter so far that their true interest, the interest of the scribes and the Pharisees, is always to make themselves look righteous in the eyes of the people. Right? You go back to to the first of the curses. He says that, uh, actually even before the first of the curses, um, they... uh, they make their phylacteries broad, their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. They like the greetings in the marketplace. They like being called rabbi. Um, let's see here. They, uh, they they make oaths that they don't seek to keep. They uh, tithe on their herbs in the garden, but they don't keep the greater parts of the law. They clean the outside of the cup and the plate like we looked at last week. They're like whitewashed tombs. They look good. And they make themselves look good. Standing up around a crowd of people and saying, well, of course we wouldn't have persecuted the prophets back then. If we'd have been around, they'd still be alive. Sure. This is why Jesus calls them hypocrites. They're, they're presuming that with the power of hindsight, that they somehow would have a, a superior intellectual ability, superior wisdom over their ancestors. This is why I caution us when we read scripture that we do it with a mirror. So that when we look at the characters in scripture, when we look at the, Take the book of Numbers, all right? No, take the book of Exodus. Exodus is the best possible book for this example. Because here you have the people of Israel, they're, they're crying out because they're just being oppressed, and, and, and the Pharaoh's making them kill their male children, and, and they're, they're being punished and punished and punished and punished and punished because they're, they're, they're blessed. They're producing and, and reproducing, and there's, there's millions of them. So they cry out for deliverance, and Moses shows up on the scene. And the first thing they do is they question, who are you? (laughs) Well, God sent me. Oh, yeah, prove it. Okay, you're crying out for God, and then you say, prove it. So he proves it to them. And then he goes before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, prove it. So he causes the Nile to turn to blood. And he clears it up, and Pharaoh says, well, my wizards can do that, and they make the Nile turn to blood. And then we get into this battle between Moses and the sorcerers of Pharaoh, right? We read this, 
and we think the people of Israel have got to know how powerful God is. And then we get to the the Passover, and they hear the cries of the families that are discovering their firstborn children have died because of the angel of death that God sent, right? And the people, Israel is not only told to leave, but their neighbors are coming out with armfuls of gold. Here, take my money and go. So they've got to know how powerful God is. They get out to the edge of the Dead Sea, they look over their shoulders, they see Pharaoh's army. What do they do? Oh, great, Moses, you brought us out here just to die. (coughs) Seriously? Oh, by the way, at that point, the pillar of cloud is in front of them. They've seen all the miracles that God has done. The pillar of cloud is in front of them, and they blame Moses. So, God parts the waters, and they cross over. And now they look over their shoulders, and they watch the army of Pharaoh get demolished. And they start singing praises to God. Yay, God! For about the next two days, as they're wandering across the desert. And then what do they do? Hey, Moses, we're starving to death out here. we got no water to drink. You brought us out here just to die. It would have been better for us to stay in Egypt. We read the story like that and we go, how can they have been so dense? Like we would be any better. We're not. Which one of us has had something miraculous happen in our life? Anything. Big miracle, small miracle. Have you ever seen God's hand of providence in your life? Okay. And then something bad happens. Right? And what do we do? We do the 21st century equivalent of, Great Moses, way to bring us out here to die. The Pharisees are saying that they were going to be smarter than their ancestors had been. Because obviously they were more righteous. They were more holy. So they wouldn't have persecuted the prophets. We can't do that. I've heard people say, well, you know, we have a, we have an advantage. We have, we have the whole of scripture laid out for us. We have the, the benefit of all of this teaching. So we can look back and we can see that we know things that they didn't know. Sure. You know what they had that we didn't? Yeah, yeah. who was it that was talking to them in this chapter? That was Jesus. Okay? They had the incarnate Son of God teaching them face to face. And how many people didn't get it? Right? How many times have we read it and not got it? Happens all the time. Jesus turns on them and he, (laughs) verse 31, thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. So you are their, their descendants. You are their children. 
By your words, you're linking yourselves with your ancestors. By your actions, you're proving that ancestry. They're following in the footsteps of their forefathers. Now, what is Jesus talking about? The conspiracy that they had already started to get rid of him. They're they're plotting against Jesus. Think about that for a second. How are they different from their ancestors? You have you have Elijah calling down fire, preaching God's word, putting to death the false prophets, and then you have somebody threatening his life. Right? Here you have Jesus preaching God's word, performing miracles to show that he is indeed anointed by God, and you have the teachers of the people plotting to have him executed. Then he says, go ahead. Verse 32, he challenges them. We don't really generally tend to think of Jesus as confrontational, right? For the most part, it's it's Jesus meek and mild. It's Jesus... You know, he's, he's the, the, the nice guy who tells everybody to love everybody else, right? Until he gets to the temple where there's people that have perverted God's commands. Just like the scribes and the Pharisees here. Because he says, go ahead. Fill up the measure of your fathers. That's an imperative. That's a command. You're going to do it anyways. Go ahead. What are you waiting for? How are you going to escape being sentenced to hell? How do you hope to have any claim on the kingdom of God with your persecution of God's people? How are you going to hope to escape eternal punishment with the way you are acting as a hypocrite, with your legalism, with your self-righteousness, works-based, satanic religion. What makes you think that he doesn't pull any punches? What makes you think that you can escape? How do you think the scribes and the Pharisees are going to respond to that challenge? Take it in context. Take it. Take, take it in context. You go back. You go back to where Jesus is uh, teaching in the uh, courtyard, and they challenge him with the authority question. Where do you get your authority to teach? And he gives the parable of the two sons, which is a direct attack on the Pharisees. You guys think that you're the righteous one because you say that you're going to do what God says? but then you don't do it. And then he gives the parable of the tenants, right? The ones that that killed the servants who came looking to collect the produce. And 
it's just the the clowns in the back of the room. Mm-hmm. Wall didn't fall over. Um, they wound up killing the son who came to collect the the property owners' uh, profits. He gives the parable of the wedding feast. The people that were invited to the feast, the Jews who said, we ain't got time for that. I've got my farm to tend, my business to tend. I don't care about the king's feast, right? All of these things are a direct attack towards the scribes and the Pharisees. And finally, Jesus, at the end of this, he just says, go ahead, do it already. Well, fine, we will. And they did. Now, starting in verse 34, this is where, where, Paul, uh, where Jesus gets really, really prophetic. Verse 34, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in the synagogues and persecute from town to town. We know from Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4 that there were positional gifts given to the church. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Um, there are a lot of people out there who claim apostle is their title, right? You see their advertisements on CTA buses and benches and bulletin boards and all that kind of stuff. Apostle so-and-so and, and prophet such-and-such. Such. Well, I don't think they're actually filling the position as, as Paul is explaining it here. Um, but those positions that Paul was talking about are really a parallel to what Jesus is, is saying here. I will send you prophets and wise men and scribes. The scribes were the experts in the law. They were the people who knew the word. They would be the pastor-teacher office that Paul is talking about. The, the prophets... Prophets, apostles, wise men. Um, Jesus says, I'm going to send them, and you're going to do what? You're going to persecute them. Go ahead and set your plans in place now. You're going to do it. You're going to kill them. You're going to crucify them. You're going to flog them in the synagogue. Think about the, the history of the church. All of the people who were named as apostle in Scripture, so that includes the 11, plus Matthias, who's named in the book of Acts, plus Paul, all of the people who were named apostle, with the exception of John, the apostle that Jesus loved, the disciple that Jesus loved, all of them died a martyr's death. They were either crucified or hanged or beheaded or otherwise killed. And John, it's not for lack of trying because the Romans beat him and boiled him in oil, exiled him to a desert island in his late years, like he's like 80 years old, 
and he's exiled on a desert island, right? Stephen, chapter 7 of the book of Acts. Stephen was filling the office of prophet. So remember, a prophet is one who speaks God's truth, right? Stephen's sitting before the Sanhedrin, he lays out the gospel. And it was the point where he said, this Jesus whom you crucified, that the Sanhedrin got a little bit heated, and they took him outside town and they stoned him to death. Paul, Barnabas, Silas, Timothy were persecuted. You read the, the, the second, second half of the book of Acts. And everywhere you go, there's persecution for those who preach God's word. And by that, the scribes and the Pharisees fulfill this prophetic statement. Throughout the book of Acts. The class that I just started this week. One of the discussion questions that I had to answer on uh, Wednesday was why did Paul take his preaching from the Jews to the Gentiles? Anybody know? No. Because the Jews started persecuting him. He went to town, he went to the synagogue, and he reasoned from the scriptures in the synagogue. And many people came to faith. But when the religious leaders in the synagogue got jealous because people were coming to faith in Christ, they stirred up a mob and chased him out of the synagogue. So then he would go to a Gentile congregation, and all the Jews who were converted and all the Gentiles who were converted would come and listen to him, and more people would come to faith. Until the leaders of the synagogue, those religious Jews who persecuted him out of the synagogue, got tired of having everybody leave the synagogue and go over to where Paul was. So you know what they did? They stirred up a mob and they chased him out of town. It happened in Thessalonica. It happened in Iconium. It happened in Berea. In the city of Lystra, they took him out to the edge of town and stoned him to death. Those are the Greek words that Luke uses. Stoned him to death. By the way, Luke was a doctor. Doctors are qualified to know when people is dead. See? She agrees. He was, Paul was stoned to death by the Jews. Jesus does not have a great deal of patience for the scribes and the Pharisees. So when he says, therefore I send you the prophets and the wise men, and you're going to persecute them, he says why they're going to persecute them. So that the, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. A little bit of research here. Um, the Hebrew Old Testament is not organized in the same sequence as the Christian Old Testament. It's got the same books. They're just in a different order. So Genesis is the first book. Does anybody know what the last book is in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Old Testament? No. That's ours. 
Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles. And if you go to the end of the book of Second Chronicles, you will read about the prophet Zechariah, who is killed between the porch and I'm sorry, yeah, between the porch and the altar, between the sanctuary and the altar. He is killed by the Jews because he's proclaiming God's word. So Jesus says that, go ahead, fulfill this prophecy so that the blood of the righteous from Abel, the first righteous man killed in Scripture, to the blood of Zechariah, the last martyr recorded in Scripture, would be accounted to them. You're just as guilty. It was always the religious leaders of Israel who had persecuted those who obeyed God. It was always the religious leaders of Israel who persecuted those who demonstrated true righteousness. You think about during the exile, during the the Babylonian captivity of the southern kingdom, right? God's prophet is telling the southern kingdom, oh, by the way, Babylon's coming. You're going to be taken into captivity, and here's what God wants you to do, right? In the meantime, the priests and the false prophets are telling the southern kingdom, don't listen to him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Things are great for us. Who was right? God was, right? Those who pronounce judgment on the wicked are persecuted. Those who pronounce God's truth are persecuted. Those who demonstrate true righteousness and not just lip service to it are persecuted. The scribes and the Pharisees aren't any different from the ancestors that they were condemning. No different at all. There was no change. There was their indignation, their statement, had we been alive back then, we wouldn't have done that, is a load of hooey. It's not worth anything. It's a flat-out lie. And then Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And here's where the discussion happens. Anytime there's a statement that includes a time frame, we're talking about things in the future, and we have discussion. Because what is he talking about? Jesus says these things are going to come to pass. When is he talking about these things coming to pass? Was he talking about the persecution of the church? Is he talking about judgment for the unrighteousness of the Jews? Is he talking about both? Is this judgment he's talking about, final judgment? Is it an interim judgment? Is it a local judgment? Is it a global judgment? What's he talking about? The biggest question is, what does he mean by generation? Traditionally, the Jewish interpretation of the word generation means those people who are born within about 40 years. 
So a period of about 40 years. Why is it the Jewish interpretation that's important? Well, Jesus was Jewish. His audience was Jewish. So that's probably the window we ought to look at, right? So basically, he is talking about the people who were alive when he said this. This judgment that was going to happen, this judgment for persecution, this uh, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. That's, that's, the, that's the judgment for what they've done. The judgment for what they're going to do, right? Is going to happen during the lifetime of those people that are listening to Jesus, right then. We use that term generation similarly when we talk about baby boomers and baby busters and generation Xers and generation Y and generation Z and generation Y and a half and millennials and post-millennials and and all that stuff, right? We talk about a time frame in which people live. And Jesus says the people who are alive today are the ones who are going to see this. What does that mean? Do we have anything to help us out in history to tell us that this took place? Because a lot of people will say that this judgment that Jesus is talking about, this is end time stuff. This is stuff that's going to happen when Jesus comes back. No. He says this generation. And he's making this comment around 30 A.D., And if a generation is about 40 years, when does that put it to happen? Between 30 and and 70 A.D., right? Give or take. Anything happen in 70 A.D. that we know about? Hmm? Yeah, the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans, right? (laughs) Yeah. Huh. How about that? The Roman army destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple in 70 A.D. If we understand prophecy in Scripture correctly, remember this about prophecy. There is always, always two elements to prophecy. There is a here and now, the immediate future, and then there is a down the road. Jesus is talking about something that is going to happen, immediate future, for that generation. But that doesn't mean that the persecution is going to stop. That doesn't mean that the judgment isn't going to happen ultimately at the end of time. Now, there is a lot more that we can say about the future judgment and the stuff that's going to happen uh, based on this passage, but we're not going to say it this week. We're actually going to stop right here. But again, I I want you to keep in mind, and this this is really, 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 really critical, the reason that the Scripture is given to us is to teach us and to keep us from doing the stuff that ought not to be done. So, when we do read in Exodus or in Numbers, I mean, how about, how about that, right? 
more of the history of the Jews that makes us say, how stupid can people be? So they finally get out of Egypt. They travel through the desert, and God provides them with food, and God provides them with water, and they get to Mount Sinai, and they see the presence of God on the top of the mountain. Moses comes down with a day-glow face. He scares them. He has to wear a veil over his face because when he meets with God, he reflects God's glory. They know the presence of God is real. Moses is up on the mountain. What do they do? <laughs> they threw the gold into the fire and a calf popped out. Right? So they worship an idol at the foot of the mountain. One of the first things that God tells them not to do. And then they leave the foot of the mountain. They've seen the power of God. They're still following the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire. They still get the manna, and they're, they're, they're eating the manna. They're complaining about the manna. We're tired of this manna, this, this, this heavenly bread. It's, it's wearing on us. We'd like some meat. So God says, okay, fine, have some quail. Now have more quail, and more quail, and more quail. So it's coming out your ears. Okay, we're good with meat. Thanks. <laughs> we'll go back to the bread, Right? They get to the edge of the promised land. How long did it take them to travel from Egypt to the promised land? No. No, it was actually only a period of a couple of weeks to travel from Egypt to the promised land. A couple of weeks. It was a short trip. Right. They get to the border of the promised land. They send the spies in. Right? How many spies? Twelve spies. Twelve spies come back out. Two of the spies said what? God's got this. God's got this. We're, we're good. The other ten, I mean, there's giants. I mean, we're, we're talking, you know, Wizard of Oz, lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my, we can't do it. And the people follow that recommendation. And we look... And we say, how foolish could they be? How could they miss the signs that God had done? Two weeks from the plagues in Egypt to the promised land. How could they forget how big God was? Well, you know, we do the same thing. And sometimes it's not even the big stuff. Sometimes it's not the big stuff that God does for us. Sometimes it's the little things, like like we have a blowout on the highway and we're able to pull over safely and not roll our car, right? Sometimes it is the big things, like like a, a deployment for a military member or, or a, a work separation or a major illness or a surgery. or Sometimes it is the big stuff. And God gets us through it. And then two weeks later, <coughs> when we face another crisis, what do we do? We do the same thing. So when we look at Scripture and we say, you know, if I'd have been alive back then, I never would have doubted. I would have followed Joshua and Caleb without a doubt. No, you wouldn't. We learn from our ancestors. We learn from history. 
And instead of saying we wouldn't persecute the righteous, how about we ask God to help us to be the righteous? Wouldn't that be a better practice? Instead of saying I wouldn't persecute them, how about saying I want to be one of them?